What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, Felony Friday focuses each and every single episode on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Felony Friday is only one of three shows we have here in Lions of Liberty. We have a show every Monday hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest running show, our flagship program. And on that show, Mark interviews leaders in the, in the libertarian movement. He hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. It is your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. You can get all three of these shows Delivered directly to your phone by subscribing on whatever your favorite podcasting app is, be it iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, whatever. Just make sure you you subscribe. We don't want you to miss a single show. This is the 128th episode of Felony Friday, so that means you'll be able to find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF128. And I don't want to waste any time. Let's get rolling into today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Brian Sadie. This is Brian's second appearance on the show. He last appeared on episode 112, so you can go back and check that out. I'll link to it on the show notes page, but I'm not going to do his full intro, and we're not going to touch on his, you know, talk about his backstory and all that stuff. If you want to hear all that, which if you haven't heard it, I highly suggest that you do, go back and check out episode 112 of this show. A quick intro of Brian. He's a politically independent author. He writes about corruption, crony capitalism, human rights, and civil liberties. Um, and especially from that civil liberties angle, a lot of the listeners of this show are going to really love it, being libertarian. Uh, Brian has published a three-book series called Rackets, which is about the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. Uh, he's written other books and many articles published all across the internet. Last time Brian was on the show, we talked about, I think most of the time we talked about the war on drugs. We might've got into gambling and prostitution a little bit, but this show is going to be almost entirely dedicated to talking about those two books, especially with everything that's been happening, current events that are uh, obviously centered around um, those two topics. So without further ado, Brian, welcome back to Felony Friday. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming back on the show, Brian. And we have, I mean, as we were talking about in our pre-show chat, we just have so much to talk about. There's been so much happening um, right. in the world today around these two events. But before we get into that, you know, I was kind of thinking with what's happened in in regards to gambling and prostitution recently, since the last time we talked, do you think we have, are we trending towards more freedom or less freedom? And just in regards to those two things. Uh, well, as far as gambling, definitely more freedom. Um, as far as prostitution, much less freedom. 
So some pretty extremes there. Yeah, so it's kind of like they're canceling each other out. We're left with <laughs> the same amount of freedom. It's, it's cool. I guess you could say that. Yeah, you could <laughs> say that. Um, as far as the gambling, there was um, there was a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision. Um, it was previously um, NCA v. Um, v. Christie. Now it's uh, v. v. Murphy because he's the now the governor of New Jersey. And um, I'm assuming a lot of your audience is pretty familiar, but just kind of, uh, just to give a little background on it. Um, the, the Supreme court, um, overruled, the, there's a, a, a law passed back in 1992, um, called PASPA. And what it did was it essentially gave, um, it basically gave a monopoly to, uh, Nevada as far as sports gambling. Uh, there's three other States that were grandfathered in, uh, Montana, uh, let's see, um, Oregon and Delaware. And they had, um, basically very limited forms of sports gambling. But what that bill did back in 92 is it, it banned any, any other states from passing any uh, legislation to legalize sports betting within their state boundaries. And the state of New Jersey um, challenged that successfully. It took several, <laughs> several challenges. It was in the courts for years. Uh, but yeah, that, that decision was recently made and now it, it's opening the door um, to where all, every other state can now offer that within their boundaries. Um, it doesn't allow for across state boundaries, um, sports betting. And actually Delaware has already um, taken that step and they are offering full sports wagering as we speak. Um, and there are several other states that are, they're in the process. New Jersey, isn't New Jersey on the, on the doorstep? They're right They're uh, Last I looked, they're right about there. And it's just going to be, um, you know, just whatever, you know, you know, crossing the, you know, just whatever, getting all those fine details at the end um, hammered out there. But yeah, that, that's going to happen. It's going to happen very soon. So if we could talk about the history of this for a minute, just to give people perspective. <clears throat> so if we go back to, you're talking about 92, and I know within your book, you, you lay all this stuff out, but can you talk a little bit about sort of the political uh, lobbyist role um, or maybe not the lobbyist role, really the um, the uh, multimillionaire gambling um, uh, casino owner role, um, one of the most influential being Sheldon Adelson. Why would a casino owner like Sheldon Adelson, who owns I don't know how many casinos in Las Vegas, why would he want to restrict just be- people being able to operate sports gambling in casinos only to one state? Wouldn't you think somebody like that would want to expand their empire? Oh, absolutely. He's actually really more, um, I haven't really heard him uh, come out strong against the sports gambling. His thing is really online gambling in general. And it's absolutely pure crony capitalism. Um, many years ago, um, when the when the offshore online poker industry was starting to become really popular, you would see it on TV, poker stars, all these different tournaments, and they were sponsored by these really big offshore operators. And um, to be pretty concise, he had tried to get a license and partner up with one of those big companies. And he, he wasn't able to get that done. So he used a reverse strategy and basically tried to crush the industry. And he's still trying to do it. Um, there, there's several politicians that he's basically put in his pocket um, to accomplish that goal. Again, it hasn't happened yet. He, he's tried to get federal legislation uh, to, to ban online gambling. Um, 
because again, he couldn't he couldn't get into the industry and then get you know get basically enforce a sort of oligopoly. So now he's on the outside looking in and trying to crush the industry. And the thing with it is he's using, um, I would say, very conservative talking points. That's really one of the it's it's a theme throughout my book and and anytime you can you look at a lot of these um, anti-gambling legislation a lot of times there's really a special interest that's really sort of trying to protect their end it's not a, a, a truly a truly purely anti-gambling leg- legislation um, so th- th- that would be my best uh, explanation for that I mean that's true I, d- I would definitely agree with that I've seen that. But there are a lot of people, are a lot of uh, you know voters out there who are anti-gambling. Right? Oh, absolutely, and and that's the thing, though. Um, I mean, there, there's just there's many examples where they're using genuine sort of conservatism, grassroots. Um, you can look at Jack Abramoff, for example. You know, he had Ralph Reed, um, who was the leader of the Christian Coalition. So Ralph Reed would sort of drum up sort of anti-gambling um, sentiment wherever the clients. Uh, of Jack Abramoff could benefit from no competition. And again, Abramoff went to prison. Uh, Ralph Reed didn't. Um, but th- it is a fact that uh, Ralph Reed was getting a lot of money from him. And, and, and he knew, w- you know, what the purpose of that was. Um, so and again, it, it's, it, that's, that's one example, but in many cases that, that is the case. Um, our own president um, at times has tried to use, again, a guy who's owned um, Atlantic City casinos. Um, he's also had riverboat casinos out there in Indiana, a guy who's very much in tune with the gambling industry, um, but at times has used that sort of anti-gambling rhetoric and sentiment to try to drive down competition. Um, right um, back in 93, he, um, he's got some really interesting testimony. And this was, this was right on the heels of his uh, Atlantic City casinos going bankrupt. So what he did is was he tried to, uh, he tried to he, uh, basically testified before Congress and accused the Indian casino owners of being in bed with the mob. Um, had no evidence at all. There were FBI, all, all types of high-level federal law enforcement officials who completely countered everything he had to say. But again, he was trying to put that microscope on his competition, again, using that the negative, the stigma attached with gambling, and, and justifiably so. There, there, there is an understandable stigma for a reason. Like you said, there are many people who oppose gambling for pure reasons. But what I'm trying to point out um, is that in many cases, um, this, there's all, a lot of times these, this type of legislation is, is protecting a special interest at the end of the day. A lot of times, in many cases. How did Native Americans come to? How did they even become like a negotiating point that they were getting access to opening these casinos? Oh, well, it's it's their sovereign land. Um, it's um, and it's kind of just really been one of those things. Um, Trump he, he does make a point because they do they do have a lot of tax advantages, um, and and I get his point, but it, it's one of the few one of the few. Uh, things that we can actually give back to the native Americans after mm-hmm. taking their land is that we'll give them, we'll give them some tax breaks on their casinos and, and let them uh, get, get some level of sovereignty. That is really interesting that they, I mean, the native Americans picked gambling as, as their enterprise, obviously seeing the hole in the market being, a, you know, not able to have gambling uh, elsewhere. 
Right. It's one, one, one of the few things we give back to them. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I mean, didn't fully give it back. Of course, we still have the, the had the lottery and, and all that other stuff. That uh, Right, exactly. And, and that's, you know, that's one thing that's really amazing is I think a lot of the conservative talking points are if we legalize gambling, everyone's going to become addicted to gambling. But mm-hmm. nobody talks about how the state, I think most states – use funds from the lottery, direct them back into their own coffers for programs and whatnot. But nobody ever mentions anything about that. And, and I know people who, I know people who spend $8,000, $10,000 a year on the lottery. Maybe every once in a while they win and win that back, but normally they're in the hole. But right. So like to get an idea, how big of a, how big of a problem do you think a gambling addiction is right now? Um, and that's the thing. It's it's a very um, what's the term I'm looking for? It's a very subjective term. Um, you you know you look at your anti-gambling um, activists. They'll say that one percent of the population, the overall population. Um, you look at a more moderate estimate. They're saying that really one percent of gamblers have have a problem gambling. Um, in my research, and again, there's several types of gambling. First of all. Um, but when you, again, if you look at all of the different vices out there, again, this is not a physical addiction. So it's obviously less, you know, addictive than many of these other vices. Um, in the book, I actually included a chart just to kind of compare it to a couple of other legal vices. And I showed the, um, the stock prices of tobacco and of alcohol in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crash. I don't remember the exact numbers. Um, there was only one casino win um, that was actually highly profitable. Um, there was another one that after about, I think it was, I did it over six years, um, that was just treading water after six years. Um, and of the, I think it was about 14 or so publicly traded um, casinos, all of them were losing money. Most of them losing money hand over fist, and a few of them had gone bankrupt. Um, so it just kind of gives you a little bit of an indicator that, for the most part, most people act rationally when it comes to gambling. Um, now, again, we have this sort of quasi-legalized status where most forms of gambling are, are basically legal. And again, it depends state to state. Um, you can look at the European model where there is there is more of a legalized model. And there have been a lot of studies that sort of show the level of gambling, um, particularly with some of the online sports books. And again, I'm going off memory. I have it included in the book, um, but the average wager was something like $5. So it just gives you an indicator that most people are doing this responsibly. Most people, this is a form of entertainment. Um, on the flip side, again, I don't want to minimize um, the fact that some people do really ruin their lives with this stuff and it, it ruins families. Um, but on the other side, you also have to realize that prohibition has never worked. It, it, this is this is this is time tested. Um, that you you can try to push this stuff underground, but it you know to try to clamp down it, but it just doesn't work. You know we're starting to legalize sports betting now. Um, the, the estimates vary. Some say it's a, a hundred and fifty billion dollar industry. Some say three hundred eighty billion dollars. The point being that the prohibition has been very ineffective. Um, and when you push it underground, it makes all of these problems so much worse. The problems with the addiction um, 
in many cases, and particularly if, say, somebody's bedding with like a mob bookie or something like that, you're going right into their bread and butter. Then, then you're going to have to start, you know, borrowing money from them at these exorbitant rates. And everybody kind of knows that scenario. And it's it's all negative. Um, there's one example I, I really kind of did want to bring up, and it's this is being a little melodramatic, but it is kind of it does kind of show. Um, I guess the potential of what can happen when when you push these vices underground. Um, Al Jazeera just did a really really interesting undercover investigation of match fixing for cricket games in India. Now in India, almost all the sports gambling is is black market. They have some legal markets, but it, it basically almost the entire market is black market. Um, but to get back to what their investigation had to do with match fixing. And the people who are fixing these matches, and this was really extensive, really high level, um, but it, it's by, um, there's an organized crime group in India called D Company. Um, I don't know if you've heard that name. D? D is a dog? Yeah, D is a dog. It's, you know, um, you'd have to be kind of a, a terrorism, you know, kind of aficionado, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really the top crime organization in India. The leader of that organization is a guy named Dawood uh, Ibrahim. I, I think I'm pronouncing it right. But he's a, he is a major sponsor of terror. Um, he's, it's pretty well known that he was connected with um, a series of bombings back in um, Mumbai in 93. Uh, a, a lot of terrorist activity connected with this guy. So the point I'm, in my long-winded way that I'm trying to make is that, again, when you, when you push these things, these vices underground, inevitably organized crime is the, you know, are, are the people who are profiting from this. It, it's not, you're, you're making all of the negatives from this vice even worse. Um, when we legalize it, we can and regulate it. We can make this better. We can, or, or like I said, we can, we can reduce the harm that is associated with the vice. Right, because just like with the war on drugs, you bring that stuff into the the light of day. Um, if you have a, you know, if somebody goes in debt, which really with legalized gambling, you won't really even have people going in debt. They won't be able to place the bet because they won't have any money. So that sort of eliminates it right there. But if there was something where someone was borrowing money in order to bet, and there was a disagreement over what they owed. They could always go to court because it's it's a legal matter. But of course, if it's in the black markets, it's behind the uh, behind the curtain. And if there's a disagreement over how much money's owed, then you know fists and guns and knives come out, and right. that's when stuff gets really messy. So uh, it's right. it's always amazing that more people don't understand that. I mean, it seems so obvious, so just completely um. rational that. Uh, well, I mean, I, I can also understand the, the linear thinking of, well, guess what? You know, and in many cases, I mean, I know people who've had gambling problems and it's been very negative part of their life. Um, so, I mean, me too, me too. Oh, right. And, and I'm pretty sure, you know, somebody who's had a drug problem, et cetera. So there's that basic linear thinking. Well, we've got to ban this stuff to stop it. So, and, and you know, that's that's kind of that's something that's been around again from the beginning of time. But we, like you said, we have history on our side, you know, and we can see that it just doesn't work, that the demand, there's a supply and a demand for all of these vices. And you can, even with the, like, like I said, with the drug war, you can give it the death penalty 
and it will not go away. Um, in Iran, that has the, they have the death penalty. There's something like 5,000 people on death row, and they have one of the highest rates of opiate abuse in the world. So, and again, I mean, it, it's really across the board with all of these vices. Um, I, you know, I hate to be repetitive, but it is something that I'm very passionate about. And we can make, again, the harm less harmful um, with all of this, with legalization and regulation. It, I mean, it seems like we're we're almost there with gambling, right? Um, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, at least it'll be left up to the individual state to a certain extent, right? Well, and, and I'm glad that you, you brought that up because with the Supreme Court's decision, it did leave the door open for Congress to, pa- uh, to pass an, a federal ban across the board on sports gambling. I don't see that happening. I don't see them. And they also have the opportunity to, to pass some sort of legisla- federal legislation to legalize sports betting. It, it's a really controversial issue, and I, and I just don't see um, Congress passing it either way. But that door is open, uh, according to the Supreme Court's decision. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's uh, it's factoring in that all of the uh, influential constituents they have back home who are going to be <laughs> having all this, exactly. these new tax dollars flooding into their uh, their states. Uh, they don't want they don't want that to go away. So right, there's a, there's a lot of special special interests on the line there for sure, and and that's the thing, and that's why I don't really see I don't really see any kind of legislation passing on either side of the issue. So this was a Supreme Court ruling, but. Do you think that we were sort of trending this way anyway, and maybe Congress would have acted because really over time, the stigma around gambling has really changed. There's a lot of states that have slots and uh, table games now, and it's, it seems like it's it's more accepted just in the general culture. Oh, certainly. I mean, the polls were, were going that way. Um, I, I look at the example of legal marijuana um, and it's amazing how much the polls changed once one state legalized recreational marijuana. Well, actually, it was two. Um, but it, it just completely, you look. You can look at the um, opinion polls and how, I mean, within a, a few years, like it was like a 10% bump and just keeps rising and rising because you killed that stigma. Um, and the reason that this, that this um, case came about was because the state of New Jersey passed a referendum to legalize sports betting. And they knew that this would be immediately challenged by the sports leagues and that it would be a court battle. But again, you know, the voters in New Jersey did go forward with that. Um, If you look at the polls, there are a slight majority of Americans favor legalized sports betting. Um, The thing that's, that's interesting, again, that's really just because of stigma for all intents and purposes, sports betting has been illegal since the beginning of time, um, other than really horse racing, and that, that's gone in and out um, over history. Uh, but it's really that stigma, because if you look at polls and you just ask an American, do you have the right to gamble with your own money? They'll, they respond, you know, like close to 90% of Americans believe that you have that right. But then there's just this one form of gambling that's just so... <laughs> It's just so forbidden. You know, there's so much stigma surrounding surrounding it. Again, and it just has to do with the history because you know there's just not a lot of momentum with that issue. But it's slowly growing that way. Um, but to get back to your original question, do I think it would have happened? 
I don't think so, but I think it, they could have come close. Um, and the reason being, again, it comes down to really the special interests. Um, originally, you know, casino gambling was pretty much just really a two-state thing. It was Nevada and New Jersey. But now there are 40 states that have casino gambling. Um, and that's what really started to push it there. The, um, the American Gaming Association was strongly pushing it, and they were openly saying, listen, if the Supreme Court um, doesn't pass this or doesn't overturn the law, that we're going to push strongly to get legislation. I do think that, you know, there probably could have been something that went into committee. Uh, but just in my personal opinion, I don't think it would have passed. I just, I just think that there's just too much stigma. Um, and again, as you know, Congress doesn't always work in the, uh, in the, in according to what the, what the voters want. Right. That rarely happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do think something would have gone, you know, pretty far, but it just, in my personal opinion, it wouldn't have happened. You're, I think you're probably right. Um, it's just one of those things where the, uh, the reward for the politicians doesn't justify the risk. I don't think in, in that case. I mean, right. And I don't think there was an, just enough of an overwhelming push from constituents to, to do something like that. At least, unless something changed, I, I don't think it would have it would have pushed to that point. But it's definitely an issue that tends to um, be pretty divided among the parties. Um, obviously, you know, more Republican voters are are, are anti gambling, um, but there's there's also a lot of Democrats too. Um, there's a sort of a progressive wing that's very sort of anti-legal gambling. I mean, that's not all progressives. They tend to kind of be pretty strongly either way, but um, there, there's a certain percentage um, that are, are pretty anti-legal gambling. I, I think, I don't know if that's progressives, but just think about the, the people I know, the Democrats I know who are anti-gambling. It's more of like, at least from what I've seen, maybe I'm wrong. It's more of like that old school Democrat, like you know, we'll we'll, we'll take you know take care of our constituents and watch over Absolutely. them. Absolutely, and, and again, I, I, get, I get it too. Um, you know, things like the lottery. You know, many of them they refer to it as a regressive tax, and I, and I don't necessarily disagree with it um, because really the people who are buying those lottery tickets they're typically pretty, you know, they're pretty low income people. Um, and obviously it's about the worst gamble out there, but again, that, that's really sort of part of what motivated me in writing this book. I was really trying to talk about the two, the two biggest black markets as far as gambling, and they happen to be sports betting and online poker, which are both games of skill um, that we we've legalized and we've really gotten behind some of the most, the most uh, just regressive forms of gambling i.e. slots and the lottery, the, mo the most profitable for the house or for the government. Those are the, those are the forms of gambling that, that are by far the most popular in this country. That's, that's an interesting point. I hadn't exactly thought of it that way, but um, it's, it's very appar apparent that you know, a lot of people, supporters of big government and progressives and conservatives alike who are trying to you know, do the best moral, you know, keep, to keep their constituents on a moral path. Um, they're, they're really just not doing them any favors, giving them the worst odds. And I wonder if with sports gambling becoming legalized, how big of a hit the lottery is going to take. Um, um, I wouldn't be surprised if I it think, starts to take I, a pretty I, big hit. I would say someone, but they're really different gamblers. Um, a person who's betting in the lottery, you, you sort of, you're, you're, you're up for the chance. Um, typically, the sports better, they like a certain level of control 
And it's something that, you know, I, I tried to write about there that, that there really are different demographics. Um, sports gamblers, again, we, again, since this is underground, um, but the, some of the best demographic information we've come across, um, uh, the city of New York decades ago actually did a study um, when, there was, when they were trying to push a bill, obviously it didn't go through. Um, but, and there was also a different um, study that looked at offshore gambling um, and you know, who are the, the betters as well. And typically, I mean, it's, a, it's an almost entirely male um, demographic. And in all of these studies, they're well above average income uh, and, and fairly highly educated. Um, so it, it really is, it, it is a different, uh, different demographic. I, I don't think it'll bite into um, lottery too much, in my opinion. I could be wrong. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend conversation mat time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. You know, gambling, as we talked about at the top of the show, that's been a dramatic, I think it will be a dramatic increase in individual liberty. And it's nice for people to have options and be able to pick how they want to, what they want to do with their money, have a little bit more freedom. That's great. But we've seen the opposite happen with regards to prostitution, which was um, volume three of your your book series um, titled Decriminalized Prostitution, The Common Sense Solution. So really, the opposite has happened here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, legislatively uh, what has happened in the past past month or so with regards to prostitution? Absolutely. Um, there was a recent bill passed, um, and it was a combination bill. The, the acronym is SESTA, S-E-S-T-A, and FOSTA, F-O-S-T-A. I can't remember the exact long title for the law. Um, but basically what it is, um, there was a, well, let me go back a little bit. Um, there's a section um, 230 of the Communications Act. This is a law that gave a lot of um, leeway to, you know, internet companies uh, like a Google, uh, YouTube, whatever, um, to protect them from the third-party actions of its users. So, like when the the high school shooter in Florida, when he uh, when he made some comment on YouTube, just saying that he was going to one day be a professional killer or massacre. I forgot what the exact comment was. You can't hold YouTube legally liable for the comments that were made by a third party user. Okay. So that, but that law was amended for this recent bill, the SESTA Foster bill. And it had to do with if a comp- if an online um, company is doing anything to quote unquote, promote prostitution or human trafficking, they can be held liable. In other words, that that barrier with the Section 230, you get much less leeway. And basically what that was, was a direct um, attack against um, a website called Backpage. And 
Congress and, and a lot of conservative activists um, have been pushing for this type of legislation for a long time. Um, most people aren't going to be familiar with the, with the website Backpage. Um, it's been since shut down um, right after that bill was passed and it actually didn't actually, uh, not as a direct result. Uh, but that page, that web page was a, it was the service provider. It's basically like a Craigslist um, type setup. Um, and then, the, you know, a small percentage of the people would use it for like, say for selling their TV online or something. But the vast majority of the revenue for that company was different sex workers. They would put up an ad on the internet and they would advertise their services. Um, and there have been, there have been victims of um, sex trafficking on that website. And that's, and understandably, a lot of people are, are really upset about that and they wanted to shut the company down. Um, the, the real problem that I personally had with that company um, is that there were actually times when some of the, some of the ads on there would be sort of suggestive of an underage user. And what they would do is they would change the wording of the ad to make the person sound like an adult, um, which just is really creepy. It, oh, it's you're really saying back, back pages would change the wording of the ad? Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. So, I wasn't so then that. it's no longer third party. Um, and, and they're actually taking an active role um, in, in doing that. And, and that's really, uh, I, you know, I have a deep problem with that. Um, if this is something that's, you know, taking place between consenting adults, um, and, and especially if you, if there's any sort of doubt, if this person is a minor, you know, that, that company needs to act responsibly. Um, so that's the negative part of Backpage. The positive so, part. If I, if oh, I can just jump in real quick yeah, for a minute. Um, sure. So it's a couple things about Backpages. Actually, you were saying that primarily Backpages is used for, uh, you know, this uh, sex trafficking or prostitution, which I, I don't agree. I, I mean, I do agree that's likely true. But oddly enough, I know a lot of people who have done very good business selling vacant land on Backpages. So it wasn't just for uh, for sex trafficking. Right. No, I mean, but the, there was a congressional report. It was something like 94% of their revenue. That's crazy. Wow. Sex. I mean, that's primarily. What, and again, I'm not denying that people didn't use it for legal purposes, uh, but that that is primarily what what it was for. So with um, with Backpages, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the owners or the founders or CEO, whatever, were indicted, and the indictment seemed like, from just reading about the stories that happened, it was unsealed like days after this law passed. So exactly. was this investigation already ongoing? And oh, they, they've been in court off and on for years, and it was Section 230 that was protecting them. So they they needed this law in order to indict. There weren't already existing laws on the book, especially with regards to them going in and changing ads. You you hit the nail on the head. That, that That's the point. They didn't need this. They didn't need this law. And the problem is it's so expansive um, on numerous ends. When you, you want to talk about civil liberties and, and basic constitutional freedom, this law is ridiculous. For one, it's retroactive. Um, and again, the term promoting, or I forget the exact language of it, um, is extremely broad. So uh, I think you've got a, a fairly young audience that they're probably familiar with the website Reddit. Um, they had... Reddit had a certain page for people just to talk about or discuss 
prostitution. They're not putting up ads. They're not, there's no commerce taking place. This is just a discussion board. But Reddit took it down immediately because of the potential penalties involved with this. You know, that's, that's pure online censorship. Um, and it really, it just opens up a whole can of worms for, for real constitutional issues. Um, but I kind of want to get back to, again, I, I've, I've just bashed Backpage. But what I do want to talk about is, is there are positives um, from that company. For example, they have, you know, given tips to, to you know, law enforcement for whenever they do think there are um, instances of trafficking. Now, again, they, I don't think they've done a good enough job as far as that. I think when, when I mentioned them changing the ads, I think that's a company that was really just chasing profit instead of doing what's right. Um, but the positive thing is, again, it, let's say that potentially this could be decriminalized. Um, but that's essentially what this platform allowed sex workers to do. They didn't have to use a pimp. They didn't have to work in the street. And, I mean, it, it's universal most sex workers who use that service, they said that this made their lives safer. And anybody who knows anything about the sex work industry, that has got to be one of the most victimized uh, groups of people on this planet. Basically, like the murder rate for a sex worker is something like 18 times the normal population. I um, mean, it's, I mean, the level of sexual abuse, physical abuse, robbery that they face, I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, and it, it's still higher even in countries where it is legal or decriminalized, but it is considerably lower than it is in our country where it is you know, fully criminalized. Um, so the, essentially that's what that platform did um, because this bill was, it was dubbed as a, you know, this nest, again, to get back to your original point that we had to have this, that, that it had to be passed in order to shut down companies like Backpage when that wasn't even true. They got them on money laundering and, and different types. I forget what exactly all the charges were, but it had nothing to do with the SESTA and Foster bill. Um, and the fact, what the thing that I was bringing up here with them changing the ads, that throws their whole immunity with Section 230 out the window because it's not third-party action. So this bill didn't need to be passed. Um, and really, wanted, there's just so many things about this bill that are just disingenuous. Um, for one, it's, again, this is... Um, well, let's throw this out there. The fact that the terms um, force, fraud, or coercion were not used in the language of the bill. And there's been this slippery slope with, with prostitution and with human trafficking where there have been a lot of these activists who try to conflate the two issues. Where, again, if somebody's working in the sex industry, according to their mindset, they are automatically a victim of human trafficking. You know, I've, so, I've, I've noticed that. I've noticed that, especially in the media. You never oh, yeah. see a story where a, uh, a, pr a prostitute, when it's clear when you read the story, it's talking about prostitution, it's always referenced as trafficking. Right. There's you, you usually, particularly, it's usually a law enforcement official. They'll say that, you know, we just did a human trafficking raid, but then they don't actually give you the statistics or, or even any sort of evidence of whether there was any kind of human trafficking. Sometimes when, and again, I don't want to deny that human trafficking takes place because it absolutely does. Um, but first of all, in a criminalized system, that makes it easier for, for human trafficking. Um, there's no transparency. These people don't have any, they don't have any resource. They can't go to the police for protection. Um, but um, 
another thing with this issue, and um, it's actually something that came up recently um, at a uh, what is uh, the the Council for Foreign Relations. Uh, Trying to remember his name. Bear with me a second. Uh, Mark Mark Lagan. He was a former um, State Department official. And the issue, what they were talking about, is because human trafficking is is a very broad range of industries. Um, for, for you know where this abuse takes place. For most people, the only thing that they can consider is sex trafficking. They can't they can't even imagine that there are people out working on farms or working as busboys in restaurants or bellhops at a hotel who are victims of human trafficking. Um, but labor trafficking, by all estimates, is much and much more pervasive than sex trafficking. Um, the International Labor Organization estimated that, um, I think it was roughly 19% of the victims of human trafficking are involved in sex trafficking. And one of the things I really want to point out when the when the first federal human trafficking law was passed, passed in 2000, in those first few years afterwards, the vast majority of the investigations were geared towards labor trafficking. But then the special interest started to jump jump in there, and now it's it's the exact opposite. There are very few prosecutions, like less than 10 percent, um, for labor trafficking, and almost entirely for sex trafficking. Um, and I really sort of make the point, and it's really the point that I make with all of these vices, is that it's essentially the low-hanging fruit for law enforcement. You can go shut down an escort service and say that you, you made progress in the war on human trafficking instead of doing real hard investigative work. And it's kind of exactly what you're pointing at. You see these stories, and they just sort of said that they did a human trafficking investigation um, when the vast majority of the times it's really just – it's just, like I said, consensual sex work. Um, and the thing is, by pushing this underground and by criminalizing it, the people who are running these operations, they then can then manipulate and coerce the people who are in this industry. You're making them even more vulnerable. Wait, when did prostitution become illegal in the United States? Because when you see the old Westerns, you know, obviously there's, you know, they go upstairs and there's, they can get a right. prostitute. What, what time frame was that? Well, it, it, it's kind of a complex answer. Um, the first state laws were right in the early nineteen, uh, the early nineteen hundreds, right around a little bit pre World War One. Um, but for the most part, uh, this was really a legal issue. I mean, a local. I'm sorry, a local issue, and it just depended upon um, that city. Uh, most major cities all had a red light district. Um, it was tolerated, and again, it just really depended upon the local police force, who was the mayor, um, et cetera. But right before World War One, that's when it all changed. States began passing the laws. Um, the only state that, that really held out um, was Nevada. Um, there, you know, and there were really a, a couple of factors, um, and it kind of goes back to the exact subject of what we're talking about. Um, there was this, what, what many scholars like to call the white slave panic. And it, it started with a couple of uh, newspaper writers, and they wrote stories with these lurid tales saying the young girls were being you know, trafficked into the sex industry. And, the, and here was the catch, was that, again, they were young white girls, and they were being trafficked by Italian men or German men or black men or Latino men. And there was definitely a racist um, element to it. And, I mean, it, 
again, you can go back and look at the text. I mean, it was it wasn't um, it wasn't subtle in any way. Um, but time after time, you know, history has proven that the vast majority of that it was just pure hysteria. Um, in many cases, it was just writers. It started out with writers who were just looking to get a story. Um, actually, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller was actually commissioned um, to look into it. Um, and the reason being, because one of the a New York writer there, he alleged that the, uh, the political machine in New York at the time, Tammany Hall, was profiting from the white slave trade. And so they, you know, they held up the, the, this commission. He led it. Um, now, let me just backtrack for one second there. Tammany Hall, they were definitely involved in all kinds of vice. You know, they profited, essentially taxed every sort of industry. But they weren't involved in actually forcing women against their will. This was, again, a consensual um, sex industry. But and again, long story short, once, once you know, reporter, some of these reporters were put under oath, they basically you know, acknowledged that they were just exaggerated or, or just completely made up the stories. Um, but again, I also don't want to deny that it didn't exist at all, but there was this major, major wave of stories and sensationalism that really started in the early 1900s. That was one of really the leading factors. Um, World War One was also one of them. Um, there was just a lot of war propaganda, and the thought was that, you know, we, we needed to ban that in order to win the war. Um, a lot of other factors, eugenics, um, just just these different factors. But really, from from really World War One forward is when almost every state passed um, a prostitution law. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's definitely a topic that I have not researched extensively, but it's it's an interesting interesting topic because as we talked about before it's so readily apparent to anyone who takes the time to look into it that it would be safer for everyone involved if it was legalized but there's such a stigma attached to it there's such a stigma attached to even like strip clubs and stuff like that mm-hmm. I, I mean I, I live in uh, in Pittsburgh and you'll see it like plastered across the paper every time someone tries to open a new strip club depending on the neighborhood there's a huge deal made out of it. It's it's just it's just crazy, and I think that's unique to the United States when you look at at least Western culture. Um, oh yeah, it's- absolutely. Um, I because I, I did different um, comparisons, um, and I think um, there's 32 quote unquote um, economically developed um, nations in the world, or what we would call first world nations. Um, and if I'm going off memory, roughly 25 of them had either decriminalized or legalized prostitution. Um, the number would actually be higher if some people included what they call the Swedish model. I don't consider that a legal or decriminalized um, model. What though. is the Swedish model? The Swedish model is where the women are not um, arrested for prostitution, only the men who pay for the sex. Well, that seems um, kind of sexist. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is... Well, don't get me wrong. It's, it's better than uh, than the United States model, but yeah. Um, well, there, there's, there's a lot of negatives. It's sort of, it's viewed widely though, that this is, this helps and protects the women, but in many ways it's, it's actually more harmful because for most, most people, a prostitution arrest, you're not really going away to prison for, for several years. It's a misdemeanor charge in most States. Um, but under the Swedish model, because again, the view is that every woman in the sex industry is a victim of human trafficking. So by that logic, 
anybody who say is a landlord and rents a home to somebody in the sex industry is then a human trafficker because you're you're facilitating you're facilitating human trafficking so what happens is in order to take that risk of, of letting a sex worker into their home they get extorted for money um, there's all kinds of things um, to, to where the women who are involved in that industry it's it's no in no way some liberal solution that that's it's better for them. Um, yeah, you know, the, the more I think about it, it's it's really upside down because you have the women who essentially they they don't have any risk. There's no risk of criminal actions against them. The men have tremendous risk. Just to, it's just looking at it uh, economically, um, how that would work out. Uh, just negotiating a, a price, it's it's really it'd be really well, strange. Not only that, let, let me let me cut you off a little bit there. Sure. On paper, there's no risk, but they are still harassed. Um, I, I wish I could paraphrase it well, but I remember um, listening to an interview with a, a Swedish sex worker who said, well, how do you think they investigate this stuff? Do they just follow random men and hope that they'll go find you know, a sex worker? No, they follow us and they harass us. Um, you know, I know there are millions of laws on the books um, you don't, if you say your car is parked 20 inches from the curb instead of 18, there are millions of ways that you can harass these people in this industry. And that is exactly what happens. Um, all, you know, several studies show that, that you would think that this was, since their side of the transaction isn't criminal, that they could then say, go to the police and go for protection, but they can't. So in, in many ways, they actually end up getting extorted by the Johns. Um, and since a lot of the, a lot of Johns, they're hesitant or they're nervous about this transaction, you know, they can't really screen for clients. So they pretty much, you know, that whole, that whole security step there is, is skipped. Um, so they're actually more, you know, more likely to be a victim of, of violence in some cases. Um, in many cases, they will lose their children because, again, that you can't facilitate this type of stuff. Um, I'll, I'll give you one real example. Cause again, the, the Swedish model is posed as, as something that's sympathetic to women. Uh, but one of the Nordic countries that, that has this, there was a police operation. It was called operation homeless where basically they went through all the known sex workers in the area and went to their landlords and made sure that they were evicted and kicked out. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's the reality of the Swedish model, among many other really negative examples. So to kind of get back to that original point I was making, I don't consider that a decriminalized model. That, that's, still, that's still a criminalized model. It's just a different way of going about it. Yeah, I would agree with you there after uh, hearing you explain it and it's thinking about it. it Sounds like it could be actually worse, right? And, and I get how your initial thought, and that's what most people do, um, and that's what, and that's what it, we're starting to see some of that or some of that rhetoric in, in the laws here. They say, "Oh well, you know what we'll do? We'll just give bigger penalties and bigger fines for the Johns. You know, we're going to gear these these penalties towards the males paying for it." But really, what happens is they still end up here in the U.S. They still end up arresting the women, and then when they arrest the men, there's just higher penalties and more money that goes to the government. And oh, another thing too is one of the, um, a lot of times with this legislation, they'll say, well, you know, we're going to pay, we're going to help. This money's going to go towards the victims, you know, of human trafficking. And, and 
if any of it does, it's pennies on the dollar. It all goes to the government or law enforcement. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way it always happens. It never happens to people who are actually harmed, harmed really mostly by the government policy in the first place. And then the government doesn't even, you know, pass on the, uh, the penalties to, uh, to the actual victims, but that's what we've come to expect with government. But Brian, (laughs) we're, uh, we're, we're running out of time here. I do want to give you a chance. If you could please tell my listeners where they can find your books, where they can find your writing, where they can find anything else you're working on. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I would say probably uh, price-wise, the best place to get my books are on Amazon. Um, again, it's a three-book series called Rackets. Uh, the first book, The Drug War, Trillion Dollar Con Game. The uh, second book is Dealing from the Bottom of the Deck. And the third book is Decriminalized Prostitution. Um, I, again, I'm also a freelance writer, so my work is you know, kind of all over the place. Most of it's on um, the American Conservative. Um some, a lot of it's also on Counterpunch as well. I've recently started a new podcast. It, it goes by the same name, Rackets. Um, and, that, and that's sort of a lot of what my book is. I, I talk about the, these different vices, but I'm also really trying to expose what I call, you know, you know legal rackets, such as, you know, uh, dirty politicians or, you know, corporate criminals, actual organized crime. And so the tagline is, you know, who are the real criminals uh, with the podcast? Uh, you can check that out. That's on iTunes and I believe pretty much every other uh, podcast provider. Uh, yeah, you can go to my website, briansady.com, B-R-I-A-N-S-A-A-D-Y.com. Um, and you can check me out on social media as well. So. Well, that's awesome. I, I had no idea you started the podcast. That's fantastic. How many episodes have you done? Oh, I'm, I'm still pretty new. I'm on the fourth one now. Okay, cool. So, roughly every two or three weeks, I'll put one out there. And coincidentally, the last one was on legalized sports betting. <laughs> so, but generally, it's kind of a more across the board kind of talking about, you know, again, different corporate crime and, you know, different corrupt politicians, et cetera. Kind of a wide array of topics there. Very cool. Well, uh, Brian, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show, and I encourage the Felony Friday listeners to check out all of Brian's work and, of course, uh, his new podcast, Rackets. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode with Brian Sadie. Uh, Brian is a friend of the Liberty Movement, and I think it's fantastic what he's doing, the books he's writing, how he is an advocate for liberty. And it's interesting, as I talked about last time I had Brian on the show, he is an ad- advocate for liberty, but he is more of a, uh, comes at it from the left, from the liberal standpoint, but very strong on civil liberties. I want to encourage you guys, please check out Brian's books, uh, the three-part series called Rackets. Um, one part focuses on the war on drugs, another on gambling, another on prostitution. Be sure to check out all three. His books are some of the best, most well-researched books that I've seen. So be sure to check them out. I really want to thank Brian for coming on the show. For you guys listening out there, if this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a while, if you're wondering, you know what, I kind of want to get more involved and help out the Lions of Liberty. I'd like to help this show grow. You can do that by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Just go to patreon.com slash Liberty. You can join for as little as $5 a month. You get access to all of our bonus content. Uh, We just released very recently an episode. It was a combination episode of a couple of our uh, 
recurring bonus shows. We have several different bonus shows, Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers. We have some pride-only libertarians and living rooms drinking liquor shows. Well, we just recorded a show that was a combination of all three of those. And it was it was something. It was it was entertaining. I, I laughed a lot. Hopefully you guys enjoyed for just as little as five dollars a month, you get access to that show and every other piece of bonus content we've ever created. Of course, you can subscribe for more than $5 a month. You can subscribe all the way up to $25 a month. And at that $25 level, you get a monthly conference call with us. You get a bunch of free merchandise. You get our news links emailed out to you every single Monday through Friday. That news link email actually starts at the $15 level. Um, We also have a $10 level, which is just a little bit less than the 15. You still get a bunch of free merchandise. But really, any of these levels, this is all laid out on Patreon, so I need to tell you guys the details of it. Please consider joining. Uh, We really do appreciate everything you guys have uh, done to help us grow this show. We will be at Porkfest coming up next week. We're excited about that to to, uh, bring you guys some live coverage from a huge, awesome, amazing libertarian event like Porkfest. We're looking forward to seeing, you know, a bunch of... uh, bunch of these uh, fellow libertarian podcasters that we've collaborated with and had friendships with, but we haven't met in person. So it's going to be great to meet those guys like Johnny Rocket, Chris Spangle, of course, Roger Paxton, who is in charge of putting Porkfest together this year. But also the Lions of Liberty art group, uh, Mark, Brian, Howie, JB, Rico, myself. As a group, we haven't been together since college. I mean, it's been 10 years. So more than 10 years. It's, it's going to be incredible. It's just going to be a, a great time. And we have the Pride members to thank for, uh, for making that happen. So from the bottom of my heart, I really do appreciate that, guys. That's all I got. just want to thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fire is the liberty burning. <laughs>